So I know you have a lot to cover tonight, yeah. so we'll get to it. But I had one freaky thing that happened last night. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Not freaky freaky, but just kind of weird. So I was doing a crossword puzzle before I went to bed. And there was this four-letter word, second letter I knew was an A. And the clue was a bird that epitomizes happiness. Now, I should have known this, but... Once I found the answer, I realized it was pretty obvious. But anyway, so I, I left that alone and I went to bed. Yeah. And as you know, I put my noise-canceling headphones on because this place is like a frat house. <laughs> <laughs> it's never quiet around here. <laughs> and occasionally I'll listen to those sleep stories. Yeah. I won't talk about the app because I'm not going to promote that or whatever. But So I got this random sleep story, and it was about the Ridgeway in England. So it's a path, you know, just walking in nature, like, right? So she's talking about walking around, and she mentions about seeing a lark. And she actually makes a comment about how they're frequently used to symbolize joy. Really? I was thinking, how weird was that, that I just had a clue about this bird, yeah. And then I'm listening to this sleep story, <laughs> and she mentions the answer. Did you go fill it in quickly before you forgot? No. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, no. But I was wondering if those are just really weird coincidences. Yeah. Or there's something else really bizarre going on. It's like, it's weird. I was just talking to your uncle about this the other day. Yeah. About like having a dream and then seeing something that, you know, like, having your dream actually happen yeah you know, or something similar yeah have you ever had that i literally just had that recently really what was it uh i had a dream it was like months ago though that i was out driving with my friend and we kind of got lost and we were trying to find the freeway and then that kind of happened <laughs> <laughs> like last week obviously we made it back safely but neither of us could go on our phones for directions so <laughs> this is exactly like my dream it's really spooky <laughs> I, i've had those a couple of times yeah at least a couple that i can think of off the top of my head but like you it was a long time between the dream and then the you know, the event yeah like I, I would have a dream that i was someplace that I didn't, i'd never been before and then a while later i would be somewhere and it'd be like deja vu and i'd remember the dream and that it was this place that I was at. And it's such a weird feeling, too. Yeah. Like the realization that, hey, I dreamt of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's freaky because then when you have bad dreams, you worry about whether they're going to come true. True, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered if that was just like weird coincidences, just randomness. I don't know, because I've heard quite a few people say that their dreams come true. And it's not like big event things but small things in their life that they dreamt about and then coming true yeah i just wonder if it's again just random like out of all the dreams and all the people who are having dreams that you're going to have some that just coincidentally match up with that's why i make sure to tell people yeah. like my dreams sometimes <laughs> if i remember them because if it ends up happening 
I don't sound crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not like doubting that it happened. Yeah. It's just whether it's some weird psychic thing or just randomness. Yeah. I like to believe I'm a psychic. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, but also I don't want any of the bad dreams coming true either. Thankfully, yeah, they're no. like so bizarre that I don't think they could. <laughs> <laughs> I would not want to know what's going to happen. Yeah, no. If it's like small, simple things, small details of us getting lost, I knew the dream wasn't a bad dream. Like I didn't remember all of it, but I knew it wasn't like horrible at the end. Yeah. Well, have you ever had dreams like when you're driving and you get into an accident or something? Yes. Yeah, and then so I'm worried about, all right, now I have to be extra careful because that might happen. Yeah. <laughs> I've predicted an accident and purposely didn't go because of it. Well, that's a tough one too, right? Because you have a premonition or something or just intuition yeah. that you shouldn't do something. But if you don't do it, you never know. I'm talking about I was at a stoplight, my oh, light right, turned right. Oh, yeah, yeah, and you, and yeah, so that's, un, yeah, yeah, that's undeniable that you had a sense that you shouldn't go. And then I was right then, about not going. Yeah, and then somebody, yeah, you hear, hear that quite often, too. Horrible. It's a I horrible was, feeling. <laughs> I was thinking about, oh, I have a bad feeling about this or that, so I'm not going to go. Yeah, but see, I'd rather... I mean, I know it's like, well, if you don't go, then you don't know. But I'd rather not go and be safe than sorry. As long as it's not something that you just never go out of your house again. Right. Like, yeah. it's not a continuous thing. But if there's like, say you're going to the mall or something and you just have like a bad feeling, I don't see anything wrong with listening to that. Especially if it's only like every once in a while. Like I said, if it's yeah, every time like you go out. <laughs> become, what's the term for somebody you're afraid to go out of the house? Agoraphobic. Agoraphobic, right. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to get to that point. So anyway, said I didn't want to ramble on too long there. <laughs> <laughs> and we did anyway. So what do you have tonight? I have a missing person case in Minnesota in 2008. Okay. So 19-year-old Brandon Swanson from Marshall, Minnesota went missing on May 14th, 2008. After graduating from high school in 2007, he enrolled at the Minnesota West Community and Technical College. Classes ended on May 13th, and he went out that night with some of his classmates to celebrate the end of the semester. He started his night at a party in Lind, a small town located about seven miles to the southwest of his home in Marshall. After he left Lind, he headed 35 miles northwest to Canby. He said goodbye to his friends sometime after midnight and headed for home. Brandon was familiar with the 30-mile drive from Canby to Marshall as he made it almost every day. The entire drive is done on one road as the two towns are directly connected by State Highway 68. There's little traffic in the area and the drive would normally take less than 35 minutes. On his drive, he accidentally drove his car off the road and got it stuck in a small ditch. He made many attempts to free the car but was unsuccessful. After calls to his friends went unanswered, he called his parents at 1.54 a.m. He reassured them that he wasn't hurt at all and that there didn't appear to be any damage to the car. He just needed help getting it back on the road. Brian and Annette Swanson told their son they would leave right away to help him free the car. Brandon gave them directions to where he was waiting, which was midway between Lind and Marshall. 
Going by what he told them, Brian believed that he knew exactly where he needed to go and it was only a 10-minute drive from their home. It didn't take long for Brian and Annette to arrive at the location they believed Brandon was at, but they were unable to see him or his car. They called Brandon on his cell phone and told him to keep an eye out for them. After a couple minutes, they started honking their horn and flashing the headlights of their pickup truck, hoping that Brandon would be able to spot them. They were surprised when Brandon said he couldn't hear their horn or see any lights on the road. They questioned if Brandon had directed them to the correct location, but he was certain that he had. Changing tactics, they had Brandon start flashing his headlights. Through the phone, they could hear the clicking noise as he turned the lights on and off. They looked out into the darkness, hoping to see a glow in the distance, but they still couldn't see a thing. It didn't make sense to them as they were surrounded by wide open fields and there was no reason why their view of Brandon's car would be obstructed. Brian and Annette remained on the phone with Brandon the entire time they were searching for him and he was starting to get aggravated. He was sure he had accurately described his location to his parents and he couldn't understand why they were unable to follow his directions. They insisted that they were exactly where Brandon told them to go, but Brandon was certain that they were the ones who were confused. Finally, his frustration reached a boiling point and he hung up on his mother. She called them right back and apologized, given the situation, his frustration was understandable. Brandon initially thought it would be best for him to stay with his stranded car since he was convinced his parents were in the wrong area and weren't going to find him. He repeated the directions many times and they didn't seem to understand. Tired of waiting, he decided things would go quicker if he could get to wherever his parents were. He could see lights in the distance coming from what he assumed was Lind, so he told his parents it'd be easier for him to just walk to the town. He told them to meet him in a parking lot of a bar. Brian agreed and dropped Annette off at home and drove to Lind. Okay, wait, sorry, before you continue, can I ask a couple questions? Yeah. Okay. First, I thought it was kind of odd that he got stuck in a ditch on a road that he was familiar driving, is that? Yeah. I I have no idea what the road looks like, but it just seemed kind of odd that he ended up in a ditch. Based off the description, it was just like a long stretch of road, and there were open fields on either side of it. Yeah, he ended up drifting off the road and into a ditch. Yeah. That seems kind of odd. Yeah. The other was obviously weird that they're trying to find each other, but they can't. And it sounds like miscommunication as far as which road he was on. Yeah. But they kept arguing that neither of them misunderstood each other. Yeah. And the last was from your last comment about was this a specific bar that they were going to meet up at or? As far as I know, it was just at a bar in the town because it's a small town that he was walking towards. All right. Continue. Brandon remained on the phone with his father as he walked, updating him on his progress. He said that he was walking along a gravel road and that he had taken a shortcut through a field. At one point, he mentioned that he could hear running water coming from somewhere nearby, though he couldn't see anything in the darkness. He just continued to walk towards where the lights were from Lind. So he opted to go off the road. Yes. And cut through a field. Yes. Hmm, Okay. Shortly after 2.30 a.m., Brian heard Brandon cry, oh shit, and the call immediately disconnected. Concerned, he frantically tried to call him back, but he was unable to reach him. He called five or six times, but all attempts went straight to Brandon's voicemail without ringing. In order for that to happen, either Brandon had turned off his phone, 
or something had happened to cause the phone to stop working. Okay, I have questions about the running water, but I'll let you continue on. I promise things will kind of make more sense. Okay. Well, kind of. Okay. To an extent. Well, if it all made sense, why the hell would we be talking about it? Yeah. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Brian wasn't sure what to do, so he drove back and forth over the same stretch of road numerous times with no success. There was no sign of Brandon or his car. Annette and Brian started calling some of Brandon's friends, and they came out to help look for him. They searched throughout the night, driving down various side roads and scouring the area for any sign of Brandon's car. I will say being on the phone with somebody and hearing them say that when you're trying to find them yeah, and then losing communication with them has to be scary as hell. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. Yeah. I, I, would, you know, I would say as a parent to have that happen with your child, but I think with just anybody. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine. I don't want to imagine. Yeah. After a couple hours went by, they were certain they had thoroughly searched everywhere that Brandon might have gone. They drove back into Lind and checked the bar parking lot on the off chance that Brandon had somehow managed to make it there, but it was dark and empty. By 6.30 a.m., Brian and Annette were out of ideas and beginning to panic. They were certain that something had happened to their son and called the Lind police to report Brandon missing. It became clear that the police did not share their concern. Brandon was an adult and he had the right to go missing if he wanted. Annette tried to explain that this wasn't a case of an overprotective parent worrying about a teen who had stayed out too late. Finally, a couple hours after they initially reported Brandon missing, police and Lind agreed to open a missing person case. Do they have to open up a missing person case just to help try to find him? I think for the official missing person report that they were trying to file. I mean, they also weren't convinced that he was actually missing. They thought that he just... Somebody comes in and says, hey, I was on my phone with my kid, and he was lost. Yeah. And then he cried out, and the phone went dead. Not sure how much more information you need Yeah. to say, hey, yeah, maybe something's up. Maybe we should help at least send somebody out and take a look. Yeah. After a search around town, police felt confident that Brandon was not in Lind. They believed that Brandon wasn't going to be found anywhere in the area, Brian and Annette had continued their search for Brandon's car, certain that they would be able to locate it when the sun came up. But after several hours of searching, they had been unable to locate it. So they, they had to have been on the wrong road. Yeah. Or somebody moved the car. Yeah. Okay. Police obtained Brandon's cell phone records, hoping that it would help them pinpoint the location of his car. They made a startling discovery that Brandon hadn't been found in Lind because he had never been anywhere near it. The calls he made to his parents the previous night had been made near a small town, Taunton, located along State Highway 68. It was on the main route to Canby, but it was northwest of Marshall, and it was 25 miles away from Lind. So he was just confused and on the wrong road? Yeah. Okay. Way off. Well, possibly a bit intoxicated? There was no statement of that, and I don't want to assume that. Yeah. But it's I just, possible. I was thinking you were talking about him being out with his friend. Yeah. Celebrating. Yeah. It's possible, but there was no statement of that. Yeah. Not to discount that it is late and easy to get your bearings wrong and be heading the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. Very easy to get disoriented at nighttime. Yeah. 
While Taunton was nowhere near Lind, it made sense that Brandon would have been close to it as he was traveling home from Canby. Less understandable is why he had still been in the area around 2 a.m. Leaving Canby on Highway 68 is a 13-mile drive to the area he was last at, and would normally take about 15 minutes. From there, Brandon only had another 17 miles to go before he would be in Marshall. If Brandon left Canby shortly after midnight, like his friends believed, it somehow took him nearly two hours to drive only 13 miles. Oh, wow. Is it, well, is it possible that he spent that time trying to get out of the ditch? I don't know how they calculated that, to yeah, be honest. that's weird. Yeah. Either way, it's kind of eerie. Yeah. Well, it could have been also from the cell phone records if they oh, saw right. yeah, it yeah. going up and down. Yeah. With the information taken from the cell phone records, the search for Brandon was shifted to the surrounding area. It didn't take long for investigators to locate the car. It had been abandoned in a ditch off a gravel road just over the Lincoln County line and about a mile to the north of Highway 68. So he wasn't even on the main road. He was on a gravel road. Completely off. Yeah. yeah. Eerie. Mm-hmm. Investigators searched the inside of the car thoroughly and they had found nothing that suggested Brandon had been injured. It was clear Brandon had accurately described exactly what happened when he called his parents. The only thing he had wrong was his location. He told his parents he could see lights in the distance that he thought were coming from Lind, but it was obvious now that he had not been anywhere near there. The location where his car was at was surrounded by grass and gravel, and there were no visible tracks to show which direction Brandon had walked when he left his car. Further analysis of his cell phone records showed that his call to his parents had been routed through a cell phone tower near Miniota, another small town on Highway 68 located about four miles southeast of Taunton. An extensive ground search was launched, with searchers concentrating on the area that had been pinpointed by Brandon's cell phone records. Helicopters flew over the area looking for anything that might be relevant. Bloodhounds were brought in, and they were quick to pick up on Brandon's scent. They followed the scent trail for nearly three miles as it went past fields and headed in west-northwest direction to an abandoned farm. The dogs continued past the farm and headed along the Yellow Medicine River. When they reached a certain point, their actions seemed to indicate that Brandon had entered the river. The water ranged from knee-high to around 15 feet. Even if Brandon had entered the water, it wouldn't have necessarily meant that he drowned. It was possible that he could have made it across the other side, but the dogs were unable to follow the trail any further. So I was thinking that he fell into a river when he mentioned the water, and then he was like, oh shit. Yeah. But it could have been he just dropped his phone. That is possible. Yeah. Worried that Brandon may have fallen into the water and drowned, the area along the two-mile stretch of river was searched extensively. If Brandon had drowned, his body would have been washed downstream, but searchers found nothing at all. Sheriff Jack walked up and down the riverbank for 30 days with no results. Investigators determined that it was unlikely Brandon had drowned there. Very odd. Yeah. The official search for Brandon was suspended after a week, but his family continued to search on their own. On May 24th and again on June 7th, around 100 volunteers joined Brandon's parents in searching areas to the south and east of Porter. Some of the searchers used ATVs to be able to cover more distance, while others walked or rode horses. Despite their extensive effort, they found no sign of Brandon. 
That's bizarre, and no chance that he might have ended up further downriver than they suspected he might? I don't know. They said that they walked the riverbank, so I don't... Hmm. I mean, it's possible. Right. But I figured that someone would have found him. Right, yeah. The search effort resumed in the fall once all the fields in the area had been harvested. Cadaver dogs were brought in to assist, and though they seemed to be following a scent trail into the area to the northwest of Porter, they eventually lost the scent and nothing was found. Wait, so they picked up a scent? Yeah. I'm sorry, was it in the area that they had suspected he was in, or was this a different area? I'm pretty sure it was the same area that they found the car in because all the fields had been harvested. Okay. When winter came, bringing along snowstorms and frigid temperatures, the search was suspended once again. By this time, 122 square miles had been searched without turning up any trace of Brandon. A tip line that had been set up brought in 90 leads, but none of them led to Brandon. The search involved 500 volunteers, 34 dog handlers from nine different states, and countless hours. Wow. Brandon's case was handed over to the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Investigation in 2010. From that point on, they'd be the lead agency on the case. Their investigation was focused on the area around Mud Creek, a side stream of the Yellow Medicine River located directly north of Taunton and to the northeast of Porter. They continued to search there periodically over the next few years. There have been many theories to try to explain Brandon's sudden disappearance. Some people believe he may have staged his own disappearance, but it seems highly unlikely. Brandon was a good student, there were no problems at home or school, and he was looking forward to transferring to a school in Iowa a few months later to continue his studies. That seemed awfully elaborate for somebody trying to fake a disappearance. Yeah, well, like with the phone calls and... Yeah, and then the whole, yeah, I don't know, that just doesn't seem right. Yeah. Like you said, the circumstances surrounding his disappearance also point away from it being staged. Purposely getting your car stuck on the side of the road, calling your parents for help, and then staying on the phone with them for nearly an hour, pretending to experience some kind of unsettling event is simply not likely. Yeah. Another theory is that Brandon was struck and killed by a car while walking, and the driver panicked and hit his body. While there have been a handful of cases where this had happened, it is doubtful that it happened since he had been cutting through fields, not walking along the road. This is supported by both cell phone records and the path taken by tracking dogs, both of which indicate Brandon was not on the road. And if this had happened, there would have been evidence left on the accident scene Blood, tire marks, and possibly pieces of the vehicle should have been found, but extensive searching produced no evidence of this. Yeah, that seems really off-base, too. Foul play is possible, but unlikely. The area Brandon was in was sparsely populated. Taunton, for example, had a population of 135 at the time, and only 175 people lived in Porter. Most of the area is farmland. It would have been almost unlikely for someone to wait for Brandon as there was no way anyone in the Porter area could have known ahead of time that he was going to get his car stuck in the ditch and proceed on foot. Yeah, it seems really random that he would run across somebody that would want to hurt him. Yeah. It was stated that it's safe to rule out the theory that this was a crime of opportunity because it was believed that the chance that someone just happened to see Brandon walking in the dark and decided to kill him was slim considering the small population size. 
I have a hard time with that because I I feel like people saying, oh, small towns, nothing happens there. There has to be some people there. Yeah, I'm not buying the, well, this is a small town, so this probably wouldn't happen. Yeah. But the odds of him running across somebody who would want to hurt him yeah. seems unlikely. But I guess kind of like what we were just talking about in the beginning about do things just randomly happen, right? Yeah. So out of all the people who have ended up getting stuck out in the middle of nowhere, is it possible that somebody could run across somebody who wants to hurt them? I wouldn't be surprised. It's a cruel world. But like, I don't think it'd be a targeted thing. Like no, that person I think it would him. be a crime of chance, right? Yeah. That he just happened to run across somebody. Yeah. So what do you think? More likely that or him staging his own disappearance. Well, for me, I think it's more likely that someone hit him, but there was no evidence. I cannot see him staging his disappearance because how elaborate do you have to be to get away with that? Yeah. It is more likely to be written off that Brandon's disappearance was nothing more than a tragic accident. He was attempting to make his way on foot through darkened fields and side roads. No lights were in the area to guide him, and no houses or businesses were nearby to use as landmarks. You know, sometimes you don't realize how dark dark is. When you see it in the movies and the shows, they always have lighting when people are out in the woods or in the, out in the fields or whatever. Yeah. But unless there is a moon, it can be pretty pitch-freaking-dark. Yeah. So it's crazy to think that he decided to cut through a field. Well, it's crazy that he was on a gravel road when he had this drive down this highway to get home. Yeah. That's bizarre. Yeah, no doubt. And that's why I was suspicious about whether he had been drinking. You know, not that he was totally drunk or whatever, but that his decision making was not as sharp as it should be. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think I just have a hard time assuming that just because they're teenagers that they're drinking, but it is a valid theory. Well, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's an assumption of his age. Yeah, it sounded like he was just on his regular route going home, which was really odd that he would end up in a ditch. Yeah, unless he got a flat or something, right? But then to find that he went off that road and he was on a gravel road, and then to find he was not even on the road he thought he was on. Yeah. What else do you you know, think that he was? No, it, it's a valid valid theory. He was surrounded by corn and soybean fields, and they would have all looked alike in the dark. He mentioned to his father that he could hear running water while he was walking, though he didn't seem concerned about it. It's possible that he did slip into the river at some point, but it wouldn't necessarily mean that he drowned. He could have gotten up out of the water disoriented, but still very much alive. He may have been able to keep walking for a while, but he would have been wet and cold and likely would have died from hypothermia eventually. There are wild animals in Minnesota, including dangerous ones like black bears and large wildcats, but an attack by one of these would have left some kind of evidence behind. If Brandon had run into a wild animal, it could have been enough for him to cry out in fear, but it wouldn't have immediately disabled his phone. If there had been an animal attack, Brandon's keys, phone, and glasses should have been found, as well as shreds of clothing and blood evidence. Yeah, even if somebody had attacked him, so going back to the theory of crime of chance. Yeah. Or crime crime of opportunity. Yeah. It doesn't seem like his phone would die, you know, because they would have had to grabbed it and smashed it, right? Yeah. It's, it really seems more likely that he dropped it in the river. Yeah. Plus, I feel like his dad being on the phone, he would have heard more of a struggle. Yeah, exactly. 
Brandon's parents continued to leave their porch lights on in hopes that he would come home. In 2009, a law was made called Brandon's Law that requires police to make a report for a missing person regardless of the age and that an investigation must be started immediately. Well, that's good. Yeah. But that is it, and that is all we know so far. That is so bizarre. Yeah, I don't want to sit here and try to guess what happened. Yeah. I do hope that it was staged in hopes that he's still alive. Yeah, I guess that would be the the best outcome. Yeah. But it's just sad that his parents leave the porch lights on still. Yeah, that, yeah, just sad all the way around. Yeah. Since that it was all I had, pretty long story, what do you have for us tonight? Well, tonight I thought I would talk about the blinking mummy. Uh, And actually, I had never heard of this story before until you brought it up a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) It does sound crazy. Yeah, I was kind of skeptical, but it is pretty interesting. Before I talk about the mummy, I have to give a little background of the catacombs where she currently resides. Sounds creepy. Yeah. So I'll probably circle back on the subject of catacombs at some point. Yeah. Because I think there are some things to talk about there, like the catacombs of Paris, which are pretty creepy. But for now, I'll talk about the Capuchin Monastery Catacombs in Palermo, Sicily, Italy. Long name. Yes. In the 16th century, when the cemetery overseen by the monks at the monastery ran out of space... They decided to excavate the crypts below the cemetery instead of expanding the burial grounds. Among other monks, Brother Silvestro of Gubbio, (laughs) no idea if that's right, (laughs) died in 1599 and the monks mummified him and placed him in the catacombs. And he is, from what I understand, the monk that greets you when you enter the catacombs. Well, doesn't greet you, but he's the first one you see. So he's mummified, just like the blinking mummy. Yeah. And he's displayed, from what I understand, when you first walk into the catacombs. Interesting. So the whole idea of the catacombs is they mummify the dead, and then they put them on display, just to give you kind of a high level there. After a few centuries of the catacombs exclusively being the final resting place of the Capuchin monks, they began offering the same type of burial to residents of Palermo, at least those who could afford the the mummification process. That's what I was going to say. I'd be surprised. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it really was for the wealthy families. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd read that people had actually put the details in their wills about wanting to be placed there and what they wanted to wear and all this stuff. I cannot imagine putting that in my will. (laughs) (laughs) The monks had refined preservation techniques over the years. It is believed that the dry atmosphere of the catacombs allowed for natural mummification. I won't go into all the details about it, but they would take the deceased and place them on racks of ceramic pipes to allow the bodily fluids to drip out and dehydrate the body. And then it said after a year, the corpses would be rinsed with vinegar and then dressed. Wait, after a year? Yeah. Huh. Not sure how long that would take today if they got a giant food dehydrator. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. 
Yeah. <laughs> I also read that the bodies were stuffed with hay, hmm. which is really odd because then to me, you're only one cornfield away from a scarecrow. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what they wanted to be. Yeah. Scarecrows. Yeah. So instead of visiting them down in the catacombs, you could just go out to the fields. Uh. And they could keep the crows away. <laughs> or attract them. Yeah. So I was trying to think of how to describe the catacombs, but to me, it's really something you have to see, at least in pictures. Yeah. Right? But, you know, they have mummies pinned on the walls, sitting, standing, laying on shelves, tucked away in open coffins, all in different stages of decomposition. Just really bizarre. So this is like the public can go into? Now it is, yes. When they were actually putting people in there, the people could come visit their loved ones there. Yeah. Ooh, I'd feel weird going to visit a loved one that passed on and seeing them mummified. Yeah, I don't get this at all. But as we were talking about before, these different cultural beliefs as far as what they do with bodies. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah, I guess you just have to, you know, it's just a different culture. I respect it. Yeah. But I just can't imagine doing that myself. Yeah. Some are also displayed in glass caskets, as is the case with the blinking mummy. Yeah. You know, I would put this on the list of places I would like to go visit, but I know how you are with enclosed spaces. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. It, I mean, it looks kind of roomy in there compared to like the Paris catacombs seem very closed in. Yeah. But I figured you probably wouldn't like it. I think it'd have to be in nicer temperatures. Because I feel like when it's hotter outside or like in the catacombs, I don't know. I'm well, assuming a, they don't have AC in there. Well, it's underground, so it's an even cool temperature all the time. Okay, okay. Because I was going to say, I feel like if it's hotter, then I'll feel even more yeah, closed in. Yeah, but I feel like I would do it just to experience other cultures and stuff. So as I mentioned, the relatives could come down to the catacombs to visit and maintain the bodies of their loved ones. Keep them clean, dust them off, I guess. Yeah. Fix their, whatever they're wearing. That's interesting. The interesting thing is the catacombs were maintained by donations from the relatives. A body would initially be placed in a temporary niche and later placed into a more permanent location. If the donations from the family stopped, the body would be set aside on a shelf until payments resumed. Oh. Now that's kind of weird because we were just talking the other day the weird conversations we just <laughs> randomly have, uh, cemetery-related. Yeah. First about how how can cemeteries possibly be sustainable as the world population grows? Yeah. You're taking up all of this land to bury. Yeah. And the other, we were talking about how do they, once they've sold all the plots, where do they get the money to maintain it? Yeah. And I guess they could <laughs> make the families pay and if they don't, like we talked about, if they don't dig them up and... Oh, no. Yeah, that's what I wondered. I thought they, like, paid monthly rent or something. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't, so I don't know where they get their money, but I guess the catacombs had a good idea where just forced the relatives to keep paying. Yeah. It is said that the catacombs contain about 8,000 corpses and a little over 1,200 mummies that line the walls. It's a lot. Another weird thing is that they have it sectioned off into different categories. So for like families, you know, the, the catacombs has like rooms. Yeah. And there's places for families, men, women, children, 
clergy, professionals, and virgins. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that might be something you put in your will. Don't put me in the virgin room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just put it on display for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Sicily Mummy Project was created in 2007 to study the mummies and create profiles of the deceased. Like Facebook profiles? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think just uh, for historical purposes. Yeah. Led by Italian biological anthropologist Dario Piambino Mascali. No idea if I said that right, as Ooh. usual. We'll go with it. Yeah. As usual. <laughs> if I bring him up again, I'm just going to say Dario. Okay. No offense. Okay. And also x-rays and CT scans are part of the process which will come into play a little bit when we talk about the blinking mummy, which I am going to do right now. Okay. All right. Two-year-old Rosalia Lombardo. I read she was actually a week shy of her second birthday when she died of pneumonia in 1920, possibly a victim of the Spanish flu epidemic. Oh. Her father, Mario, was so devastated he approached the Sicilian taxidermist and embalmer Alfredo Salafia and asked him to preserve Rosalia's body. Alfredo did such a skillful job that 100 years later, Rosalia looks like she is dozing in her case. I don't know if that's, like, impressive or creepy or sad. No, it's creepy. I mean, seriously, I can't even look at the picture too long because it is just creepy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she does look like she's sleeping, but you know she's dead. Yeah. So I was like, ugh. The catacombs had actually been closed in the late 1800s because no more vacancies, I guess. Yeah. And only two exceptions were made after that, Rosalia being one of them. So she's in a glass case. I don't remember if I mentioned that. Yeah. She is considered one of the world's most preserved mummies, and even her internal organs are still intact. That's crazy. She is so perfectly preserved with only a slight purplish cast to her skin she has been given the nickname Sleeping Beauty. The embalming technique used was a mystery until Dario tracked down living relatives of Salafia. The relatives still had his handwritten notes that outlined the chemical formula he used. Unlike the usual embalming techniques that remove the internal organs, Salafia made a small puncture in the body and injected a mixture of formalin, zinc salts, alcohol, salicylic acid, and glycerin. The formalin killed bacteria that causes the decomposition process. The glycerin was to make sure the body didn't desiccate or dry out. Yeah. The salicylic acid killed any fungus in the flesh, and the zinc salts petrified the body and prevented her cheeks and nasal cavity from caving in. The process of them over the years figuring out how to do this stuff yeah, is what seems bizarre to me. That's what I was going to say. Like, how do they figure that stuff out? Well, it has to be trial and error. And then, you know, oh, well, that didn't work on this body. So the next one, I'll try this. Yeah. I guess. Now, if that isn't creepy enough, visitors swear that the little girl actually blinks her eyes a few times a day. Mm-mm. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Now, her eyes aren't 100% closed, which is believed to have been intentional to give her more of a look of being alive, which is creepy in and of itself, but yeah. the, whole, the whole thing is creepy. Again, mummifying bodies and then keeping them around to 
uh, display and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But as far as her blinking, one theory is that the changes in the temperature inside the crypt cause her eyelids to expand and contract, producing the illusion she is blinking. Another theory is that the changing direction of light throughout the day makes it appear that her eyes are opening and closing several times throughout the day. So again, just an optical illusion. Still creepy. Yeah. Now, I, I did see some evidence of the blinking, which is pretty bizarre. But to me, it would be something I'd have to see because you just don't know what, what you're looking at, right? That's true, yeah. These days, you know. So I don't know. That was it. I mean, it is a creepy story. I'm not doubting that she's blinking. Yeah. Kind of would like to see it myself. That'd be interesting. It's like sad, bizarre, and creepy all at once. Yeah. Yeah, definitely sad, like I said, if you look at the pictures. Yeah. But that was it. Anything else? I don't think so. All right, then let's wrap it up. Thank you very much for joining us. Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12past3 or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night. Good night.